Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to You're Missing Out, colon, a National Film Registry podcast. And what are we here to discuss? As per usual, the National Film Registry, but in a different way than normal. Most times here on the show, uh, we talk about one film specifically that was inducted into the registry uh, several years ago. But today is our special annual episode where we give our real-time reactions to the films selected for the National Film Registry. Uh, joining us uh, once again, I'm Mike Natalie, and of course, uh, my co-host, Tom Lorenzo. Hello, guys. We're back again. And joining us on Mike for the full time, the uh, sort of MC of this in some ways, the only person on Mike right now who knows what got inducted this year, our producer, Kyle Lampar. I don't remember getting you guys keys to get out of your bunker yet. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Tom's been out of the bunker. Tom's been out and about. Uh, in fact, fun fact, everyone, there's a chance he forgot we were doing this because I texted oh. him earlier and said, are you ready for our annual tradition? And he thought I was referring to the Mel Gibson movie Fat Man. The Santa Claus well, movie. Because I was going to see, see Violent Night, yeah. and he goes, "Oh, and that's gonna." And he goes, "Oh, the and then next the yearly tradition." So I go, "Yeah, that and Fat Man, the two recent badass Santa Claus movies." No, I'm, I I think the thing is, Tom, if if um if you're missing out, the podcast is a, is a child, and and Tom, you like to say a lot, like, "Oh, well, Mike, you came up with the idea of the show." If I'm the mother of this show, in some senses, Tom, you are the the absentee father. Where every once in a while, I will just text you and be like, you know we're doing this, right? And you're like, ah, crap, he's got a birthday party, I got a softball game going on. Uh, I don't know, put some money in a card. You're not wrong. But today is a very special episode, because uh, especially now that we're both on mic and we know we're doing this, what we don't know is what movies got into the National Film Registry. Uh, that is because, for those of you listening to this for the first time, uh, we are going to give you our real live reactions. Kyle knows the 25 films that were selected this year for the National Film Registry. It has been a little over 12 hours since they went live. It probably went live a little earlier today. I don't know. but um, Yeah, I think around like 2 a.m., but I woke up at around 7 this morning and they were there, so they were... It has presumably been discussed on social media. Uh, we tried so hard not to spoil it for ourselves. I deleted Twitter off my phone. Um, we have a vested interest in this. Not just because uh, we do a podcast about the National Film Registry, but at the end of every episode, we select films that we think should be in the National Film Registry. So related to whatever film we discussed, Tom and I each pick a movie that we think belongs in the registry that's not already there. Then at the end of each of our seasons, we take that list of 50 films with some extras and we submit it to the Library of Congress in the same way that anyone can. Uh, part of the beauty of the National Film Registry is that anyone can submit suggestions uh, to the National Film Registry that will be discussed by their panel. Uh, Kyle, I think you said you have a stat about that this year. Year over year, there was a 11% increase in film nominations for the registry. So I'd like to, like to think what we had, at least had a little bit of a part to play in that. So we were part of that 11% increase of submissions. Uh, Tom and I each submitted uh, 25 new films. And then in addition to that, Kyle supplemented that by submitting some of his own picks that we discussed on the show and all of the films 
that we had submitted during season one that had not previously been selected for the registry because, in a very cool thing, uh, last year, one of the films that we selected uh, for the National Film Registry, or suggested to the National Film Registry, I should say, they took that suggestion and Watermelon Woman made it into the National Film Registry. So, without any further ado, uh, unless there is further ado, does anybody have any ado to further? Uh, no, I'm I'm pretty well a dude. So, well, I'll I'll read my 25 that I submitted at the end of season two. Tom will do his, and then Kyle will wrap us up with his submissions and 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 all of our season one. So, here are the 25 films that I submitted at the end of this past season, season two. I suggested the National Film Registry. The kid stays in the picture. Annabelle's Serpentine Dance, Scarface, Inside Deep Throat, Fiddler on the Roof, Gimme Shelter, The Dover Boys at Pimento University, The Social Network, Dead Presidents, Juice, Jackass Number 2, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, American Dream, Rejected, Lady and the Tramp, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, The Children's Hour, Harvest of Shame, Possibly in Michigan, The Elephant Man, Flesh, Claudine, Up in Smoke, how the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. And my picks are Training Day, Bad Boys, Heat, Bram Stoker's Dracula, George Washington, The War Room, Here Come the Coeds, Sorcerer, Letters from Iwo Jima, The Outsiders, Smokey and the Bandit, The Bridges of Madison County, Blue Collar, 300, Breezy, Top Secret, Magnificent Obsession, Miss 45, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Cross of Iron, Boomerang, Mikey and Nikki, The Naked Gun, High Plains Drifter, and Open Range. And my picks were Spider-Man, 2002, Me at the Zoo, the first YouTube video, American Psycho, and Superbad. And of course, if you are a longtime listener, uh, one of our guests, Dr. Robert Snyder, had a pick of his own ready when he came on our show. Uh, he selected Head, which we had uh, submitted on his behalf. And then in addition to that, Kyle, you also submitted uh, our season one uh, submission. So let's give everybody a refresh of what we picked back in season one that was also resubmitted this year. So these also were in the conversation about what they might select. We've got Boogie Nights, Hannah and Her Sister, Technological Threat, the 1938 serial The Lone Ranger, Moulin Rouge, Iron Man, Bamboozled, Dixon Buffalo Bill Films, Terms of Endearment, The Little Mermaid, Blue Velvet, Street Fight, Tongues Untied, Batman, A Clockwork Orange, Just Another Girl on the IRT, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Crazy Cat Bugologist, Thief, The 1910 Wizard of Oz, The Watermelon Woman, The Watermelon Woman, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Quelga, it's a mad, 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 it's a mad, 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 mad world. The Trump Talk Citizen Kane, how would you describe that one? Errol Again, Morris what? clip, I guess. Great. And then for Tom's pick, we've got Barton Fink, Rolling Thunder, Madawan, Man on Fire, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Blade, Casino, Fort Apache, They Live, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Brick, Nixon, F for Fake, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, Failsafe, Crooklyn, The Blues Brothers, Magnolia, Fat City, Brazil, Blood Simple, The Age of Innocence, 
the hired hand, the train, there will be blood, and that's it. So that is everything that was submitted on our behalf to the registry. Uh, As we noted, Watermelon Woman did get in after we submitted it. We technically didn't submit Clockwork Orange and Blues Brothers because those got in halfway through our season because of the way we have things scheduled. But the real question and the real reason why folks are listening, if anyone's still listening at this point, quite frankly, the real reason folks are still listening is to see what got in this year and what we think of it. We got Watermelon Woman in last year. Will we get any in this year? Tom, Kyle knows, but what do you think? Do you think we got any in? Do you have a guess at how many? How do you think we did between all 50 of these or 100 of these films? Uh, I, I'm i going to take as – I'll say we probably got something in, at least one. I'll go uh, be a little generous and say I think we got three in this time. Okay. I don't know, but I, I'm going to say three. Can I tell you what I hope it is? I hope it's only one, and I hope it's Here Come the Coeds. Just because I want it to be just the one that had the least amount of thought put into it. It it would be quite fitting. All right. Uh, oh, wait, we should explain to folks one thing. Uh, the way this is going to work, Kyle is going to give us just the year and the title. If Tom or I, or both of us, know what it is, we'll talk about it right off the bat. If we don't, uh, then Kyle will read us the registry statement for what the, the film is. From 1898, the Mardi Gras Carnival. I mean, 1898's not a not a narrative, so I would not know what that is beyond presumably just a film of a carnival. So what's that all about? Um, it's my favorite movie. How dare you? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's a. Uh, it's probably. It's yeah. It's probably like a five minute clip at fucking Mardi Gras. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> just like oh yeah, they, we have we have footage of Mardi Gras. What is this, Kyle? In 2013. The Library of Congress issued a detailed report showing that over 70% of silent-era American feature films have been completely lost. Many of these titles perished in nitrate fires, while copyright owners often melted the films down for their silver content once their theatrical runs ended, feeling the films no longer had any commercial value. Luckily, hundreds of lost American silent films have been rediscovered in foreign archives, carefully preserved by archivists in those nations. American cinema has always had a worldwide audience, and the copies sent for overseas distribution often found permanent households and archives in the UK, France, the Czech Republic, the Netherlands, Italy, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Russia, and Scandinavian countries. The iFilm Museum in the Netherlands has been one of the leading rescuers, recently recovering films such as Shoes by Lois Weber, Beyond the Rocks, Swanson and Valentino, His Birthright, Hayakawa, The Flow Below, The Flow excuse me, The Floor Below, Mabel Normand, Lucky Star by Borzage, Borzage, help me out with that one, maybe? Yoar Borzage, silent version of Capra's submarine and numerous vitograph films from the tents. The selection, Mardi Gras Carnival, is another one of those finds and is the earliest film known to exist of the Carnival Parade in New Orleans, showing several dazzling floats, paraders, and spectators, almost all wearing hats. The film is part of iFilm Museum's Mutoscope and Biograph Collection. This collection consists of about 200 films preserved on their original 68mm format. The digital file provided is scanned in 2022 at iCollection Center from the 35mm duplicate negative that was made in 1998. After the first analog preservation round made 25 years ago, i is now undertaking the digital restoration of the Mutoscope and Biograph Collection. Mardi Gras Carnival became the focus of attention thanks to its inclusion with the Artistry of Rex exhibition that opened in the summer 
that opened in the summer of 2022 at the Louisiana State Museum. Okay, so what we're looking at there is a case of, because I did actually, I wouldn't have known what this was, but once Kyle started giving us all the description, I'm pretty sure I remember hearing about this truly because uh, my partner and I have thought about taking a trip down to New Orleans and I came across this thing about, it is essentially the earliest, unless I'm mistaken, Kyle, you're the parent, it's the earliest footage of a Mardi Gras celebration. And it was one of these things that I think was long thought to be lost. Uh, and some historian came across it. And that's kind of what we're seeing, especially when we deal with these earlier picks. Like last year, the first film they inducted, or the oldest film they inducted, was that Ringling Brothers Circus Parade. That was just like one of these candid films that captured, because it was filming a circus parade, it captured black life in that period in a way that wouldn't have been depicted in a traditional narrative film. And I, I think, obviously, I haven't seen this particular Mardi Gras celebration film, but it does feel like part of that, like that paragraph was addressing trying to preserve all of these old mutoscopes and all of that. I do think there's something to the idea of, you know, now going back to these films you know, after the, you know, by the time we introduced the Great Train Robbery, which we talked about last season in like 1910 or so, uh, the public loses interest in watching these uh, slice of life films. Um, so there's really no interest in preserving them. But now we get to go back and look at those and historians are interested in looking at those because they capture a way that people live. In, in a way that I think we people of the time took for granted, like who wants to see that, you know? So I do think there's something uh, to that. So that's an interesting thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I'm all for the archiving and saving of all these old films and especially these kind of things where it's uh, like Mike said, slice of life. It gives us a little bit of a, a peek into the past in a way that we really can't as much as good as some production design can be on movies set in the past. There's nothing really like, seeing the unfiltered view of what things look like in the fucking 1800s. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for this. That's super interesting too, because 1898, that's gotta be, it's, it's not the, it's not the single oldest film in the registry, which I think is still Newark athlete, but that's gotta be one of the oldest in the registry. I'd assume, right? It's probably the oldest in a while at the very least. Right. Yeah. How many of these, 1800s can possibly in there yeah like anything i know of that's like 1800s in the rest of the day, i think is like the edison films like newark athlete and yeah. like um i don't think monkey shines is in but you know one of those not the well, not we'll, the, we'll get george romero in there at some point i was gonna say not the romero well he is in there for night of the living dead but yeah anyway but we'll we'll get him in there for his real best movie so i assume uh, you know, that's the oldest one. Kyle, uh, what is, what is next up for us? We jump ahead to 1948 through 1951. It's a collection <laughs> of... Hang on, hang on. I'm sorry. I want to just interrupt for a second. Really? It's that big a jump right off the bat? 50 years. Yeah. We spent all morning joking about how Tom is usually, like, bored for the first half of this when we're just talking about, like, old footage of trains. And they just breeze. And you said 1945 to 1948 through 1951. Yeah, it's a collection of home movies from Cab Calloway. Wait, 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 hang on, hang on. Home movies from Cab Cab Calloway? Calloway? 
Yeah. Minnie the Moocha Cab Calloway. That, the roller coaster I just went on in terms of like, Kyle goes eight, uh, 1948 to 1950, whatever. And I'm like, ooh, maybe it's like some weird film serial. And he goes, home movies. Okay, what am I going to watch home movies? From Cab Calloway. What? Are there, are there, like, are there <laughs> any, is this the first home movie series that has ever entered the no. national? Court? No, there are a ton, Tom. There are actually a bunch of them. Um, really? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, I know Disneyland Dream. Uh, that's definitely in there. Um, and then there's like a couple of like different families' home movies that get in because they show communities in America that are never depicted on film. But Cab Calloway's home, Kyle. I gotta I, hear I, this paragraph. Yeah. What are the what is the paragraph for Cab Calloway's? I mean, we know who Cab Calloway is, but there's no way either of us can even conceive of what his home movies are. So it's shot in 16 millimeters. Uh, it's black and white and color. So a mixture of both. Includes hang, hands, excuse me. Includes handsome footage of the legendary singer, band leader, actor, and his family and friends. It's filmed with his wife, Nuffy. They document their home life in Long Beach, New York, and their travels throughout North, South, and Central America and the Caribbean. Collection of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Gift of Cabela Calloway Langsam. Photo chemical preservation was performed by Color Lab, which made new inner negative prints of the silent films from the original 16 millimeter color and black and white prints in 2016. Okay, so did they just like literally throw like a dart at a like a <laughs> pile of names and they were just like Cab Calloway's home movies? What the fuck is this? So here's the thing though. <laughs> I'm willing I'm not to against that. it. No. I'm not against it. I'm just saying it's the most random fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm, well, it's it's amazing. On. I love it. Can I tell you why I bet they're fascinating though, Tom? Because it mentions his travels, right? Yeah. Think about 1948-1951. Think about the very, very small window of black artists from that era who were able to perform in both traditionally black spaces and traditionally white spaces, right? I mean. When you think about what he must have been able to capture, yeah, right, a, a side of life, not to mention, I mean, Cab Calloway is obviously a hugely important pop culture figure, and, and seeing those would be fascinating anyway, in the same way that, like, we talked about Harold Lloyd last season, has copious home movies of people like, you gotta see him, but... Also, just, this is two, two years in a row, Cab Calloway gets into the National Film Registry. Well, Blues Brothers was two years ago. There's a I, Gap Calloway year. Okay. Okay, there's but a, two Cab Calloway gap year, but yes, but that's and also you know like in the paragraph says, and what I like, which is what the Mardi Gras thing was like, we get to see Central and South America yeah. in the forties and fifties at a time where uh, that wasn't an easy thing for people to do, and uh, a way to see that just glimpse into the past is taking away the Cab Calloway element, which I would never do. This is now my new favorite thing. Um, <laughs> Tom's waiting for the 4K Blu-ray. I'm waiting for uh, Severin to put that out. Um, <laughs> yeah, like that's really cool. Like that's actually pretty cool. As random as, as hell as this is, and, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And the I other like beautiful that. thing about preserving this stuff too, I'll just say, like in a future season, years from now, we're going to cover Disneyland Dream, um, which was just Kodak in the first year Disneyland opened. Kodak held a contest to give one cat family and i think eight millimeter camera 
as long as they film an eight millimeter film camera, as long as they filmed their trip and then Kodak could play it. And now the registry selected it because, oh, because of this family's footage, you get to see Southern California in the 50s. You get to see suburban life in the 50s and you get to see Disneyland in the 50s. But I believe after it was preserved, somebody turned around and went, that's Steve Martin. Steve Martin was working at Disneyland at the time as a magician and juggler. And somebody noticed in Disneyland Dream, they're like, that's young Steve Martin working at Disneyland. (laughs) So there is something about, like, honestly, preserving these home movies and things like that. Like, what are future generations going to see in that, you know? Even in the same way, like, last season, uh, we talked about uh, Long Goodbye got inducted. And Tom pointed out, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger's in that movie. That didn't mean anything to the people at the time, but that is a fascinating extra element to be in there. So, yeah. I Kyle, I'm sorry. I think we went way longer on Cab Calloway's home movies than you expected we would. But uh, yeah, yeah, probably more than any other film on this list. Um, I, but it just the next entry. Again. Yeah, what's next? Uh, 1950. Because again, it's like 1948. Jesus so this Christ. is the other 1951. Yeah. Uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh, is that the is that the Jose Ferrer one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then that makes us okay. Uh, have you I seen haven't that seen one? It, time? But... Okay. No, but I, I I know the Cyrano de Bergerac story, so yeah. it's like I haven't seen it, but I I know what it is. So that's well, but yeah, okay. It's it's not. But here's the key thing about it: it's not just that it's a good adaptation. It's maybe my favorite or the the um the 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 uh, Gerard Depardieu one, but it's the fact that Jose Ferrer wins Best Actor for it and becomes the first uh, Latino actor to win Best Actor, and I would imagine probably the first non-white actor to win Best Actor, right? I think. Well, yeah, because, I mean, Sidney Poitier is not going to like, 20. I mean, as long as you... Competitive. I mean, obviously, like, James Baskett gets it a special Oscar for Song of the South, but nobody really talks about that for a number of reasons. But, yeah, Jose Ferrer wins Best Actor for Cyrano de Bergerac. So, setting aside the fact that it is a great adaptation, um, which, by the way, I think people can watch, because I think that movie fell into the public domain. But in addition to being just a great film adaptation, yeah, Jose Ferrer winning that Oscar for that is is an incredible achievement. Hey, I'm into it. That's not, that's all all good to me. I like the Cyrano story. My favorite is probably Roxanne. But what are you going to do? Um, yeah, next entry. It's not Cab Calloway, so I don't care. <laughs> From 1963, Charade. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's cool. Wow. You know what's weird about that? I just talked about how I think Cyrano de Bergerac's in the public domain. Charade, definitely in the public domain. Maybe one of the most exploited public domain films of all time. And um, uh, probably the best uh, Hitchcock movie Hitchcock didn't make until yep. Brian De Palma shows up in the scene. I mean, obviously, we all, I think, are on the same page that we prefer the truth about Char Lai. But, you know, listen, if we're going to do, you know, Charade's right. No, really, Charade is great. It's um, Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant. Um, phenomenal score. Um, I do think it's one of these movies that its public domain status helps its legacy because I feel like it gets it can get played anywhere at any time and be on any DVD anywhere. And I think that helped people yeah. find it. And it's, it's a one nice... of those movies that can be like on the screen in movies. I'm pretty sure it was a movie. It was the movie being watched in a movie theater in this uh, horror movie on Shutter I watched earlier this year called The uh, Watcher with uh, Mike Monroe. 
So, yeah, I definitely think that's probably a big help to it. It's what helped, you know, we mentioned it before, Night of the Living Dead. So. And it's also, it's not just, it's the fact that it is an incredibly watchable movie. And I think it's watchable in, like, I think it's public domain status helps charade be the kind of movie that's like a TNT movie before there's a TNT. You know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of, like, it gets endeared to you because you can see it anywhere. It's, I think it is, it's maybe a bit of a weird movie on a first watch to try and get in its wavelength because Grant and Hepburn are so seemingly mismatched because it is kind of doing the Hitchcock thing, but it's kind of playful and you never know how seriously it's taking the the story. And and to kind of jump off of that uh, public domain thing, helping it, it, I think it also helped it uh, stay alive a lot longer than it did because it's playing off of the Hitchcock thing. Mm-hmm where a lot of Hitchcock movies weren't available for a long time because of rights issues with the studios and stuff. (coughs) Excuse me. So, you know, people couldn't see Vertigo North by Northwest until like the 80s, but you had Charade. It's right here. We're going to show it. You know, people, and people liked it. It wasn't like people didn't like it. It's in the fucking registry. Um, Again, not Cab Calloway's home movie, so (laughs) go fuck yourself, uh, Cary Grant. But, yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool. Kyle didn't read the paragraph. I'm just realizing. So yeah, we don't have we don't we are only doing the paragraph. Oh, we don't have to. the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. fuck that. Next movie. Yeah, because otherwise it's just going to eat up so much. Because they're getting verbose now okay. with some of these paragraphs. So yeah, that that one for yeah. for Mardi Gras wasn't a fucking paragraph. That was a, that was a, <laughs> a, that was a college essay that someone had to write. Yeah. Okay, so what's after sure? I can't believe we're already up to the fucking sixties and we're like five movies in. What is this going to be? Uh, from 1963, Scorpio Rising. Oh, okay. That's one that I feel like is is shocking it wasn't already in. There are other Kenneth Anger films in the registry already. I think Oda Artifice is in there. But I think Scorpio Rising is his most famous and most well-known film. Um, so I'm shocked it took this long, other than the fact that it still feels so controversial. It's kind of like how Pink Flamingos got in last year. And we, Tom, when it got in last year, went, I'm shocked it's not in there. Uh, Scorpio Rising, for those who don't know, uh, it's about 26 minutes long, I think. It has an incredible soundtrack made entirely of unlicensed music. Kenneth Anger satirizing both masculinity and fascism. It's a film, a, an experimental non-narrative film about a, a Nazi biker gang that gathers together in their uh, garage, pumping iron. Look at it, their Marlon Brando pictures and listening to all their duop music and, you know, being just so masculine and so manly that they're flexing. And then they start pulling their dicks out and they start pissing on each other and having an orgy on the Nazi flag. And you're like, oh, right. Okay. Uh, really transgressive for its day. Uh, really shocking to see then. Still kind of shocking to see now, especially with that, you know, uh, that great duop soundtrack to it. If I remember correctly, I think it gets protested by the Nazis, not because of the gay content, but because they were desecrating their flag. And uh, the cops showed up and broke up, I think, the premiere or an early screening, uh, something like that. Well, they were already there, so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Kenneth Anger is one of the most important like experimental filmmakers of the 60s. And Scorpio Rising is maybe the most important film he ever made. So it is truly shocking that it took this long to get in, but for the fact that it is definitely the kind of thing that you could see, like the Pat Buchanan's of the world getting mad that their tax dollars are paying to preserve. 
that makes me so happy that it's in. I also love that last year we got Pink Flamingos in. This year we're getting Scorpio Rising in. Maybe we can alternate. Can I get another Waters next year? Am I allowed my one transgressive film? Do we get Hairspray or Serial Mom in next year? You know? Um, I'd be very happy. Anyway, Tom, any thoughts on Scorpio Rising? Never saw it, never heard of it, but all that sounds A-OK to me. (laughs) Kyle, what's next? From 1967, Behind Every Good Man. I don't know what that is. No, I have no, I'm assuming it's a documentary from the title, but. Yep, this flirtatious, heartbreaking, pre-Stonewall UCLA student short by Nikolai Urson offers a stunning early portrait of black gender fluidity in Los Angeles and the quest for love and acceptance. Following playful street scene vignettes accompanied by a wistful baritone voiceover narration, the film lingers tenderly on our protagonist preparing for a date who never arrives. The film is preserved by the UCLA Film and Television Archive. That sounds fascinating. So it's a, it's a, is it a feature or is it a, do you know, offhand or I guess? Um... Sounds like a student short. Okay. And what? not all i know okay and it's about a a, a a black trans woman you said right yes let me see i just sent over an article that might help too i mean that definitely sounds interesting and um already what we're like six movies in and yeah. it already is like clear that i mean like yet again the real like there's a real push for inclusivity in this yeah. list and trying to reorient the canon without outright uh erasing like movies that we know are great like or like charade is maybe like the whitest fucking thing in the world or but it's still like like we know it's a good movie we could still say this is a good movie without doing what like you know the dirtbag left says we should just erase all like white people movies (laughs) which is like i don't know i mean there's a lot of good whiteies out there that made movies Bad whiteies that made good movies. I don't know. I'm sure we'll talk about them next season with Philip Iscove. Um, but yeah, I I do like because you know this is an interesting pick in that it's not like oh we're doing inclusivity for inclusivity's sake, so we're putting in like the like the best man or something. It's like oh no, this sounds like really interesting, like forward thinking stuff that actually probably inspired a lot of interesting filmmakers huh on letterboxd nikolai urson is credited as nick elliott and his other directing credits appear to all be porn well there you go second most popular movie on letterboxd besides behind every good man is a 60 minute film called morning noon and night the synopsis is mustachioed and handsome Greg Myers and Dave Daniels search for true love among three humpy studs. So I say that to say it does feel like even though we had four years of conservative rule recently, it does feel like the National Film Registry between Scorpio Rising and this have very consciously gone, all right, the evangelicals are not going to pay attention to what we're doing anymore. We can get the good stuff in. You know what I mean? Like, you couldn't have put this in in 1990, you know? Like, Rush Limbaugh would have had a conniption. Um, and I like that they're finally just being like, all right, we can we can do this now. What's next, yeah, Kyle? It's all good. From 1967, Titicut Follies. Oh! Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, yeah. yeah. We're actually doing a Frederick Wiseman film this coming season, uh, High School. 
And as I was planning ahead, I was like, what might I pick for high school? Holy shit, Tittick and Follies isn't in there. That's insane. That should absolutely be in there by now. So now I need to rethink what my registry pick would be for that. But absolutely, Tittick and Follies should be in there by now. Tittick and Follies is a very affecting documentary, as you guys can probably tell by the way that Tom and I both reacted with uh, what sounded like shivers. Um, is that fair yeah. to say? Tom? That's a movie yeah. you don't forget seeing. This is a movie that's almost like a dare. <laughs> yeah. And not in like and not in like the Edgelord Serbian film way, because this is a documentary and it's like, oh yeah, humanity just fucking sucks. <laughs> like it's things are just bad and things are just dis- disturbing and like I don't know. It's just ugh. You don't you don't forget having seen it. Um we'll probably talk about Titica Follies a lot when we talk about high school. Because they are kind of intertwined insofar as one of the things that Wiseman does so well as a documentarian, especially in this era, is the way that he can kind of make his subjects feel comfortable enough with him and make them feel like he is going to just capture their day to day. Like he doesn't rely heavily. High school has no voiceover whatsoever. And if you watch it without paying attention, you're just going to see a collection of clips. But then as you focus on it you start to see exactly what he's selecting and why um with Titicat Follies I mean the man with Titicat Follies Frederick Wiseman does for mental institutions what Upton Sinclair did for factories with the jungle you know what I mean like he really just exposes the inhumanity of it um in a way that I'm now I'm legitimately feeling slightly anxious thinking about it I'm not joking. I'm my skin is starting to crawl a little bit. Um, we will talk about it, which means we'll have to watch it again. But also, oh my god! There's... Well, luckily you don't have to watch it again for like forty years, so it's oh my fine. god, it's yeah. Um, Tidic and Follies it deserves to be in there. Incredible film should have been in there much sooner. But holy shit! Okay, what's next, Kyle? I don't want to talk about this one anymore. From 1968, Mingus. Mingus, M-I-N-G-U-S. Yep. Okay, so this is, so this is about Charlie Mingus, the jazz musician. Yes. Okay. So I guess it's a documentary. Yeah, I would imagine or a concert film. Is it a documentary or a concert film? I'm gonna guess that counts. This raw portrait of the legendary composer and bassist Charles Mingus is an invaluable, at times sad and harrowing, document of one of our great American composers, the jazz scene in New York in the late 1960s, life in Harlem, and Mingus's eviction from his apartment. In his interviews with director Thomas Reichman, Mingus riffs with bemused but knowing frankness on issues including racism, his place as a jazz musician in a white-dominated American society, politics during the civil rights era, and women. Mingus also features rare and remarkable footage of the artist performing in clubs. Interesting. I've never seen this. Um, I would like Neither to. Neither have I. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in watching a documentary about uh, 1960s jazz stuff. Well, especially because 68... It's shit's bad for Charlie, you know? Yeah. Uh and and uh, also yeah, so. yeah, Mingus also uh has a lot of opinions all the time about anything. So I would imagine watching that he's going to say some things. Um yeah, I think a couple years ago they put a Thelonious Monk documentary in too. So I I'm glad that they're getting that in. I mean, important cultural figure, so. Next picture from 1971. Manzanar. 
no fucking I know, clue. I know nothing about it, but I'm going to assume it has something to do with the Japanese internment camp of the same name. Uh, looks like it. Robert uh, Nakamura created this documentary as a film student at UCLA Film School's ethno-communications program. During his childhood, Nakamura had lived in the Central California Japanese-American internment camp of Manzanar. He recollects his childhood experiences at Manzanar, feelings, smells, sounds, the FBI taking away his next-door neighbor active in judo and kendo, the stark surroundings, his parents maintaining a cheerful front, going to the camp bathroom and not remembering which of the similar-looking barracks he lived in. The film serves as a pensive meditation on how his time there as a child has affected his adult life. Japanese music serves as a commentary on the images, and the shaky handheld camera footage attests to the disjointed and stressful nature of his childhood at Manzanar. I mean, that's definitely not going to be a fun fucking thing to watch, but uh, I'm definitely interested in it because I've always been fascinated about how this country just always conveniently sweeps under the rug the Japanese internment camps. Um, yeah, one of the worst things we've ever done. Just conveniently. Like, yeah. okay, yeah, we'll talk about slavery, even though a lot of people bitch about, do we have to keep talking about it? It's like, well, at least you're acknowledging that we're talking about it. We talk, you know, but we, we just, we, we don't talk about the Jap. It's, it's crazy that we just don't talk about the internment camps. And to go off your point of, we couldn't get some things in under conservative rule. We couldn't have gotten this under, uh, fucking Trump because he was literally the, the internment camps came back into popular conversation again because of his clear, uh, uh, intent. To probably get a tournament camps going for Muslims. Well, it's strange though. You say because like the other thing is like, it's it's something that as America you would think that it would be a topic for art and film in a big way, especially now so many years out. But like, other than maybe like Bad Day at Black Rock acknowledges the internment camps, and beyond that, like you don't really see a lot about it um, even now. I mean, George Takai tried to stage a musical on he did stage a musical on Broadway about his life in the internment camps, I believe called Allegiance, um, that that the, uh... that couldn't really draw box office after a while. Like, it needed more support, needed more love, because people just don't want to acknowledge it or look at it. And I think that that's... Yeah, it's... Uh, it's I, I know uh, the second season of that show, The Terror, was set in an internment camp. Uh, it was canceled after that season, because <laughs> I don't think people want to watch stuff like that. Um, people, uh, seem to conveniently forget that, uh, the Karate Kid for as 80s yes, rah-rah yes. as it is, has, uh, a very heartbreaking scene where Mr. Miyagi gets drunk on sake on the anniversary of his wife and child's death in an internment camp while he was off fighting in the war, which is just like, oh, this is a sharp right turn into darker territory than the go-go Reagan 80s would seemingly allow a movie to go especially one that was so successful don't get that shit um love it i mean i love that they w went to that well and gave the movie a greater depth than it needed but yeah we just don't talk about it we i mean i think that's just the greatest symptom of this country we don't like to talk about our sins i mean i say we talk about slavery but we we really don't we conveniently ignore everything and try to just sweep it under the rug that's why reconstruction didn't work that's why we're still dealing with the 13th amendment that's why, you know, we just, I mean, every time a black person gets shot by the cops, you got to hear every conservative go, uh, do we have to hear about slavery again? It was 200 years ago. It's like, 
All right, but they're still getting killed in the streets with impunity, guys. And, I'm, I don't know what to tell you. And that's kind of what, you know, especially in recent years, the film registry has been good about. And we talked about it last year when the murder of Fred Hampton got inducted. Yeah. Remember, these films are getting preserved by the Library of Congress, by an act of Congress. They are preserved. That cannot be taken away. And as such, we cannot deny it. You know, um, for as much as this may seem like a silly thing that a bunch of film nerds are getting together to talk about, the fact of the matter is, by Carla Hayden putting this in front of Congress and adding this to the film registry by an act of Congress and preserving it, the government is acknowledging this and that we have it on the record in, in a way that cannot be denied. I have not seen Manzanar. Um, I don't know much about it of the film itself. But those images will exist in the same manner that the murder of Fred Hampton will exist and that so much of this Freedom Riders will exist and it cannot be denied. And I think that, you know, in a time that feels perhaps a bit unnerving with what people want to not just sweep under the rug, but kind of erase from our history uh, books and pretend didn't happen. Like it's so important that we make sure that we're preserving the evidence and the testimonies of, of things that have happened. So all for it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all for that shit, man. So uh, next picture, give us Jesus. something a little yeah. less depressing. It's been, a, it's been a heavy one so far, Kyle. What's up, bud? From 1972. Betty tells her story. I don't know it, Kyle, but from the tone of your voice, I'm willing to bet that this is not the uplifting thing that Tom just asked for. And also from the the title, it sounds yeah. like a documentary about probably a woman describing her horrible fucking life. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is a documentary about like, and I went to the store and had a good day. Well, you'll tell me. Okay. Leanne Brandon's classic documentary explores the layers of storytelling and memory, how telling a story again can reveal previously hidden details and context. In this poignant tale of beauty, identity, and address, the filmmaker turns the storytelling power over to the subject. Deceptively simple in its approach, the director, in two separate takes, films Betty recalling her search for the perfect dress for an upcoming special occasion. During the first take, Betty describes in delightful detail how she found just the right one, spent more than she could afford, felt absolutely transformed, and never got to wear it. Brandon then asks her to tell the story again, and this time her account becomes more nuanced, personal, and emotional, revealing her underlying feelings. Though the facts remain the same, the story is strikingly different. Betty Tells Her Story was the first independent documentary of the women's movement to explore the ways in which clothing and appearance affect a woman's identity. It is used in film studies, psychology, sociology, women's studies, and many other academic disciplines as a perceptive look and how our culture views women in the context of body image, self-worth, and beauty in American culture. That sounds so good. It, it does. It doesn't sound like a, a romp, but it does not sound like a, 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 a glimpse into the abyss. So uh, I'm, I'm into that. I, I, Something that's not miserable. Is that a sh like a short documentary or like a feature length? Does it say? Because I don't I don't know if that sounds like a ninety minute thing. Um, unclear from that. It does look like, according to a quick search, it's about a twenty minute documentary. I, so I got really swept up in all of that. Uh, that sounds yeah. That's fantastic. all. That sounds really cool. I definitely um, like that. Uh, 
the whole uh, look into storytelling and psychology and how uh, I... one telling dis- differs from the next. Oh and everything. man, I don't know that what. Sounds like, really the... cool. Yeah, geez, that I don't. I haven't heard of that. I don't know the the filmmaker, but I I should. And um, that's probably getting if it's online. That's probably getting watched uh, when we're done with this. I'm being honest. Okay. Wow. What was it? Betty tells her story. You said Kyle. Betty tells her story. Yep, from 1972. Okay. All right. And this next one's from 1972 as well. Superfly. This I knew about. <laughs> oh, this one I didn't know about. Okay. Oh boy. Oh, fucking boy. Um. Oh, that's fucking awesome. Hell yeah. 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 All right. Um, we actually got we actually got a movie that's inclusive. That's not a fucking <laughs> knife across your fucking spine. Okay. Um, so I Hell yeah. I was just thinking about Superfly 2 because I just watched, if anybody hasn't seen it, check out on Netflix a documentary that I hope gets an Oscar nomination uh, this year uh, called Is That Black Enough For You? which focuses on a, a pivotal uh, decade in black cinema. And they talk about the evolution from Shaft to Superfly and so on. Uh, Superfly has maybe one of the greatest soundtracks of any movie ever, but also a question that I, I wonder, Tom, and I don't have the facts uh, through this, but I thought about it when I saw the title come up before. Is this the first time both a father and a son got films in the National Film Registry? Because, of course, Gordon Parks is in there for both The Learning Tree and Shaft, and Superfly is directed by his son, Gordon Parks Jr. So, oh, fuck, that's right. Is this the first time, I wonder, is this the first time a father and son, or even just we two generations in general, have films in the registry? Um. There, we talked about it with Learning Tree. We touched on it, you know, about Shaft and how there's a lot of misconceptions about Shaft uh, being, you know, people think of it as more of a black traditional black exploitation film than it is. Sweet Sweet Back got in like a year or two ago, and we talked about how that's not all. That's also not the traditional black exploitation film. Um, when you in your head imagine like the traditional black exploitation film, that's Superfly. Like Superfly yeah, is. It is- it, it is creates black a language. Life. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Mac is, by the time it gets Black Diamond, like, Superfly is legitimately a great movie. It's an enjoyable movie, but it is just, you look at it and go like, oh, this is where, this is what everybody is lifting from. You know, like, there's something in the air with Shaft and coffee and all of that, but then by the, like, by the time Superfly happens and hits, that's what everybody is copying from there on out is Superfly. Oh, yeah. Because it's just so, yeah. it's so engrossing. The soundtrack is so good. The style is so good. Um, and they just remade it like two or three years ago, right? Didn't they yeah, have like a the new Superfly? Guy from, yeah, with the fucking kid from Gronish. Yeah. That's and, a uh, weird thing that's been happening I, lately. I haven't seen that yet, but uh, Alec was a big fan of it. Yeah. So. I do want to see it. Um, I will say uh, this does feel like the, like you said, the movie we think of when we think of black exploitation, um, mainly because it's not a good movie, but it's a good soundtrack, which elevates it to being a good movie because it's frankly kind of incompetent and really fucking stupid, but it's very stylish and it has a great soundtrack. So you're just like, yeah, this is cool. I mean, I'd probably my brain would probably do better from just huffing nitrous, but okay. It's like it. It's uh, I'm into it. I like bad movies. It's fine. I just I'm being honest here. This is a dumb fucking movie. 
So hell yeah at National Film Registry. Get your freak on. This is the lightheartedness I needed after the fucking internment camp shit. God damn. Yeah, that was that was a stretch of like Titicat you the the mood in the room changed when Titicat Follies came up. It's like someone just told us JFK died. What's next? Oh. From nineteen seventy-four Attica. A documentary about the Attica. Is there a different documentary called that? Because there was a documentary called Attica that came out like last year. Is this like a more Wait, hang on. 74? Jesus, Attica. wasn't Attica 72? Uh, s- s- September 71, according 71, to the Seventy one, yeah. This had to be... This, so this is, like, insanely contemporaneous. Is it... Wait, is it a documentary, or is it, like, some art film about Attica? It does look like it here. So Americans have often ignored... Americans have often ignored somewhat out-of-sight perversions of the American dream. Inequality, race relations, conditions at mental hospitals and prisons, these issues only gain the spotlight with coverage of a horrific situation. The September 1971 Attica prison uprising is the deadliest prison riot in U.S. history. To protest living conditions, inmates took over the facility, held hostages, issued a manifesto demanding better treatment, and then engaged in four days of fruitless negotiations. On day five, state troopers and prison authorities retook the prison in a brutal assault, leaving 43 inmates and hostages dead. Cinda Firestone's outstanding investigation of the tragedy takes us through the event, what caused it, and the aftermath. She uses firsthand interviews with prisoners, families, and guards, assembled surveillance and news camera footage, and video from the McKay Commission hearings on the massacre. An ex-inmate ends the film with a quote hoping to shake public lethargy on the need for prison reform. Wake up, because nothing comes to a sleeper but a dream. Jesus. Fire. And I just... Fire. I want to watch that. That sounds incredible. I just looked up Cinda Firestone, and she made this film when she was 23. Insane. Sure, I'm in. I'm entirely uh, yeah. familiar, but I mean, haven't seen it. I've heard of the event itself. I've listened to Al Pacino scream that name many a time in my my day. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely into a documentary about it. Let's do it. Let's fucking yeah. roll. The one last year, sixty year old Tom really too, wants to watch so, yeah. this. <laughs> sixty year old Tom. Next picture. From 1976, Tom. I know what it is. What came out in 1976? Oh, yeah, there we go. I know this one, yeah. It's Carrie. Brian DePalma's Carrie. Another one that you feel like, of course, yeah. Of course, it it took a while to get in, but yeah. Well, that, honestly, it just feels more like, it's like, it's threefold why you would, it's, all right, you'd think it would be in, because it's such a canonical classic in your mind. Yeah. But you have three strikes against it. One, De Palma. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's a divisive figure, and we tend to think of him as this sleazy schlock guy. So he kind of gets knocked. Maybe. It might be. Maybe, like, High Mom is in there or something. No, I don't know. Um, you also got Stephen King. Horror writer. Tends to be looked down upon from the higher... You know, edu- you know the higher ups, the the uh, elite, uh, and it's a horror movie, and it's like an unabashed horror movie. It's a movie that ends with a fucking bloodbath at a school. So you know, this is not a movie that's like builds to like that ha- nothing happens, and then they tell you what it's about for the last five minutes. This is like a an according to Hoyle horror movie. So I'm yeah, I'm fucking happy. 
for all three of those things, for all three of those things to be recognized in the National Film Registry. Yes. Amen. Howler. Yeah, I fully, I mean, I'm fully for it. Um, the only reason I'm surprised, yes, horror gets the short end of the stick, but it did get Oscar nominations. You know, it was a significant yeah. film in its day. Um, it was definitely viewed as more than just schlock in its day. Um, and it's also the case of, I mean, that that central performance is one of the greatest performances in, in horror cinema in general. And also the supporting performance. Yes, the supporting performance. Of course. Um, but yeah, I'm all for keeping that's what it that and Superfly were spoiled for me. There's only one other title that's been spoiled for me, so the rest of this is a mystery, thankfully. But yes, very cool that Carrie got in. Uh all for it. Um plus more horror in the registry, which doesn't happen often, so good for that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, man. I'm into that. From nineteen seventy six as well. Union maids. Oh my god, is this another fucking documentary about a miserable topic? Probably. Okay. Let's find out. Julia Reichert, Jim oh. Klein, and Miles Moglescu? Moglescu? I, I guess so. Directed the seminal labor documentary on the attempt to create industrial unions during the tumultuous 1930s. Crafted in the form of an oral history interspersed with footage from the National Archives, the film interviews three Chicago women who served as labor organizers during that period. Kate Hindman, Stella Nowicki, and Sylvia Woods. The best documentaries let the subject speak for themselves, and Union Maids benefits greatly from the passion of these three remarkable women whose moving recollections vividly recreate the era. An exemplary, an exemplary example of history from the bottom-up filmmaking, it resonates as both a plea for union rights but also equality for women taking part in often male-dominated unions. The film had a theatrical run in nearly 20 cities and received an Academy Award nomination for Best Documentary Feature. I yeah, I feel I, I I'm gonna be just candid with everybody on mic and everybody listening. Uh, I I'm I felt well, I feel like I'm about to start crying. Um, it's been an emotional discussion anyway. But um, the minute that Kyle just said Julia Reichert's name, um, for anybody who doesn't know, um, Julia Reichert, an incredible documentary filmmaker, um, growing up female, one of her films uh, was already in the registry, um. Uh, just passed away um, just just two weeks ago. Um, and it was just a talented filmmaker. Uh, won the Oscar for American Factory recently. Um, just a really, uh, you know, t I've, I've listened to her speak a couple times. Um, just an incredibly gifted filmmaker. And just, uh, sorry to not talk about the film in question, but just to, to know that that is getting recognized and presumably was part of the discussion before that happened it just really knocks you knocks you back um but good that that her work is being recognized especially because i i don't think those two Chappelle netflix specials she directed are getting in the registry anytime soon so you know I, i'll take this one um yeah the rest Wait, of julia record did did she really yeah i'm not joking you can look it up julia record uh she did oh, that's good she did 846 and live in real life but prior to that, uh, yeah, uh, American Factory, last truck closing of GM plant. Um, yeah, Growing Up Female was her first film, which is in the registry. And then, uh, yeah, Union Maids in 76. Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, listen, I'm into it. It sounds miserable. So, you know, glad I have 30 years to steal myself up to watch this 
never-ending parade of misery the registry is throwing at us this year. But hey, I'm into it. It's only ramping up from here, boys. Give me a fucking break. I'm... If that's going to make you cry, get I, ready. I'm having, a, I'm having a rough one, okay. From 1977, word is out. Stories of some of our lives. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. I know that. Yeah, I know this one. Uh, uh, um, I'm assuming it's a miserable documentary. No, it's not. It's it's not. It's just a really incredible work. So this is from, I don't remember his name, but it's the same director that did The Celluloid Closet. Um, this was a film. What what was the year you said again, Kyle? 1977, you said? 1977. Are you thinking of Peter Adair? Yeah, yeah. If memory serves, this documentary is just, um, I don't remember how many people, but it's just candid on-camera interviews with uh, open homosexuals in, in the 1970s. And um, that may not seem like much to some people listening, especially younger people listening, but um, it is impossible to overstate what an act of courage that was at that time. Um, yeah. You are looking at uh, I've never, I've never actually seen uh, "Word Is Out," and I would have thought that "Celluloid Closet" would have gotten in first. Um, and I, or I think "Common Dream Story of the Quilt" is also him. I think he gets his Oscar for that, Peter Dare. But um, yeah, "Word Is Out." I mean, you know, it is at a period of of a groundswell of of um, passion for gay liberation amongst people within the community, but but certainly not a widespread acceptance uh, like we. Sh- you know, uh, often have today. Um, I think a lot about when we're talking about, I mean, you know, today or yesterday, uh, the president signed a bill codifying uh, gay marriage and a thing that people my age thought maybe we would see in our lifetimes. And um, yes, it, it's under attack, but we got it. For the people in that film, in the word is out, it, it was a thing that they would never have imagined would happen in their lifetimes and the extra tragedy that that film could not have known is how many of those people most likely it did not happen in their lifetimes because of um how how shortly thereafter that film uh the aids epidemic um took so many um yeah i i have not seen the word is out i don't know how readily available it is but i am aware of it and just I don't know. We talk a lot on this show. We deride a lot of filmmakers who think they're being transgressive because they make, you know, a, a, a clown murder movie or something. But like that is yeah. actual courageous filmmaking. You know? Drag terrify you to hell and back, Queen. <laughs> I need to do something. I am. I am so. This is goodness gracious. Yeah. That's, like, I mean, you know, like you ever see like a clown like, you know. You think he's going to stab a girl, but then you know what he does? He fucking shoots her. <laughs> fucking yeah, I, edgy, bro. I mean, I've ne- again, I I have I have not seen words out I should. I don't again, I don't know how readily available it is, but just I just looked at 26 people. 26 people uh that it interviews and then it played on PBS. I mean, just Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely uh belongs um absolutely belongs in in the registry and uh, i think an important document so that's like 
So that's a movie with a maximum, because I don't know the actual count of who does what, but and a maximum of 52 gigantic balls of steel. Well, men and to women. To come out and do that shit. But to be clear. Men but that's what women. I'm saying. A maximum. Yeah. A maximum. Because yes. I don't know yeah. how many men and I women mean, are interviewed. I mean, we don't... That's the thing. I think it is just... I mean, we were just talking about John Waters. We were talking about John Waters and Kenneth Anger. And the other thing is, like, when you talk about John Waters or Kenneth Anger, who I, I love, they were openly, actively transgressive in every way they could be. They were like, if the system doesn't want me, I don't want them. I don't need them. But the people that we're talking about in this film are just telling you like we are just people living our lives and that's such an act of courage um yeah um yeah anyway what's next kyle next Hi. picture next picture from 1979 bush mama oh okay wait bush mama. is that an american film i mean it has to be it got in um we've actually talked uh, we've talked about Bushwam on the show yeah. before. Um, that's a Haile Garima film. Um, right? Yeah, yeah. I, they're they're counting this in this right. case as uh, Garima's uh, UCLA thesis project. Uh, Got thesis it. Okay, project. that makes yep. sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you guys remember when we talked about Killer of Sheep, we talked about that LA Rebellion group, um, with, you know, uh, which was Charles Burnett, Julie Dash. Uh, we talked about Heli Garima uh, primarily about um, on that episode. We talked about Sankofa uh, because that was a movie that was so hard to find for so long and recently got restored and put on Netflix. Um, Bush Mama is probably his most famous film, but it's also, you know, I, I, I think still hard to find, I think. Um, but yeah, Heli Garima, a, a really interesting filmmaker, um, but at the same time uh, seemed... So opposed to Hollywood and the system, uh, you know, that I wonder how he feels about being enshrined in the Library of Congress now. Um, yeah, Bushmama, one of, part of the L.A. Rebellion, I believe, deals with, you know, or primarily deals with the idea of a Vietnam veteran returning home, uh, you know, at a time, pretty much around the same time the Deer Hunter was doing that, uh, but in a much more, uh, I think, uh, transgressive way. Um, very cool to see Haile Grima get acknowledged in that way i think a lot of that ellie rebellion scene is getting that recognition i mean julie dash has two in the registry charles burnett has two in the registry um yeah very cool very very cool bush mama we i mean again you guys can go back to killer of sheep uh we have a discussion with danielle scruggs about this picture but um yeah hell of a choice very cool next picture from 1982 the ballad of gregorio cortez okay this oh, is, I've heard of this. Yeah. It's in the Criterion Collection. Is it? I, the only reason I, I know of so. it, um, it is, this feels like I saw. I wanted okay. to check this out after reading the freaking little uh, blurb of it. It's an. I mean, it's an, it's incredible. This is Edward James almost as the lead, right? Yeah, I, yeah. It's I. The only reason it it came on my radar recently is like a couple months ago, the Hispanic Caucus. I sent you guys it. The Hispanic Caucus submitted a letter of. Um, uh, Latino films they wanted in the registry and this was on there and I came across and went, oh what the hell is this and looked it up and I'm like oh that sounds awesome uh, I haven't seen it but I'm very curious to see it uh, Kyle did you want to give us the paragraph for this one I can yeah Acknowledged as one of the key feature films from the burgeoning 1980s Chicano film movement, The Ballad of Gregorio, Gregorio Cortez was based off folklorist Americo Paredes Paredes acclaimed account of El Corrido de Gregorio Cortez, a key work of the Chicano Studies movement. 
the ballad from the borderlands of Texas and Mexico explored the creation through song of the folk hero Gregorio Cortez, a poor Tejano farmer accused in 1901 of killing a sheriff who had shot Cortez's brother during a poorly translated interrogation. A posse of some 600 Texas Rangers pursued Cortez for 11 days before his capture. As widespread newspaper accounts of the chase and subsequent trial spurred the creation of the ballad, relying on the prodigious talents of director Robert M. Young, lead actor and co-producer Edward James Olmos, cinematographer Ray Villalobos, and producer Moctezuma Esparza, the ballad of Gregorio Cortez employed narrative devices common to such classic films as Citizen Kane, Rashomon, The Man Who Shot, Liberty Valance, to tell its complicated story in a nonlinear fashion. While some characters speak in Spanish and others in English, the filmmakers decided not to use subtitles to replicate in audiences the experience of borderland characters caught up in the unfolding tragedy. The film has been preserved by the Academy Film Archive. Sold. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't yeah, seen it, but I will. That- I heard about it when the Criterion came out. It sounded great then. Definitely sounds great now. Definitely want to crack that shit open and give it a spin. Uh, yeah, I'm into that. Next picture. From 1984. It, How are we already in 84? Itam Hakim Hapit. Victor Masayevza yeah, Jr., Hopi director and cinematographer of the video, Itam Hakim Hapit. We someone, the Hopi, or Hapi. Once wrote, if film is about imagined time and space, it is born from the imagination of people, each of whom have constructed those times and spaces differently. In Itam Hakim Hapit, Masayevza imaginatively, imaginatively translates Hopi native oral tra- traditions into video art, complexly constructed of four stories conveyed to Hopi children by elder Hopi historian Ross Makaya, who died shortly after the film's release, and accompanied by imagery documenting Hopi life, often in non-confrontational close-ups of details are revealed by a non-intruding and slowly moving camera. Itam Hakim Hopit moves from the personal to the mythological to the historical, ending up in prophecy. Trained as a still photographer and active as a poet, Masayevza masterly employed color posterization accompanied by Spanish military music and a Vivaldi concerto concerto to introduce a section on Spanish conquest, fast motion to distort a harvest dance, contemplative long shots of landscapes, blurred videography, and silence for emphatic effect. For me, he wrote, photography is a way of imagining life's complexity. It provides an an analogy for philosophical comprehension. At the conclusion, Micaiah announces the importance of the video for the Hopi people. I have told you a lot. You have learned a lot from me and learned the stories. These stories are going to be put down so the children will remember them. The children will be seeing this and improving on it. This is what will happen. This will not end anywhere. Well, I mean, I'm I'm certainly interested in seeing it. I hadn't hadn't heard of it, but I do think um I mean, we can't we keep doing this thing especially because of this year and the inductees of going like, well, we have to acknowledge the uh the parts of America's history we try to erase and dealing with Native American culture heritage and storytelling is certainly a part that mainstream America tries to relate, uh, erase constantly. So I'm certainly uh, interested in checking that out. I'm unfamiliar with it, but I'm very glad they found it. This is the kind of find that I think the registry is very good at. You know, I feel like sometimes when these lists come out, people focus on the big titles. They focus on like some, not everybody, but you know, people look at like, well, they got Carrie and Superfly in there. What's this thing? And I think it's really good that they're finding these titles and bringing them to people so that Folks like us who are curious can discover them. So I'm definitely interested in, in checking that one out. Yeah, I'm interested too. Definitely want to see that in 30 years. 
I mean, we can watch these sooner on our own. I intend to do so. It's, I know, but it's like, I got a lot of other things to watch, man. And I know I got, I want to watch it in 30 years. Like, it's fine. Like, why, 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 why take away that opportunity for myself? 30, 30 year older Tom, me in my 60s, I'm like, what do I do? Oh, I could watch this. Oh, this just uplifted my day. I just did myself a favor. I just, so you I know just want to say, you. I just want to say my favorite part of that is that there was a real cut to moment there where you're like, look, I got things to watch. Cut to Tom watching Halloween ends for the 50th time. Like cut to immediately. Listen, number one, you're not, listen, number one, you're kind of not wrong because I'm going to immediately watch wrestling. Yeah. Oh boy. All right, Kyle. What's next, next picture? All right. I don't know why this is my thing now, but I don't know. Next I picture. Don't, no, I don't like Kyle saying all right. I am already on the fucking verge right now. I can't do this. What? All right, well, spoiler alert. I know what the next movie yes, is. Yes, thank you? you. Just based on math, I know what the next movie is. D- unclench your ass cheeks. You're about okay. to jump in the air. Am I? From 1988. Mike? Really? Did we get two? Did we get two fucking waters in a row? Hairspray, baby. Oh, I'm so happy. My God. You know, it's funny. That's probably John's most normal and accessible film. I mean, it gets made into a successful Broadway musical and another film based on it. Oh, good. You know what's funny? Last year, when Pink Flamingos got on and we in and we talked about it, uh, we were both lamenting. I mean, you know, just in one way or another, both talking about, like, John Waters hadn't made a film since uh, A Dirty Shame. Um. And now he's making another film, apparently, and he's getting this recognition. He's got so many films in the Criterion Collection. Um, Hairspray is a hell of a film, if folks haven't checked it out. Um, and it is transgressive. You know, I mean, John Waters' films are transgressive. But the thing about Hairspray that makes it so transgressive in in the best way, and again, I'm not going to bring up all of these faux transgressive films, but the thing that makes Hairspray transgressive in the best way is that while so many of his films exist to shock, and so many of his films are like, well, Divine is going to eat dog excrement, right? Or um, or multiple maniacs with the rosary scene in the church. Or, uh, you know, what have you. Um, with Hairspray, the only transgressive act is he says, I can make a wholesome and touching film about racism, but our lead actress is going to be a chubby girl, and you're going to have to cheer for her. Which is, it just feels so unique when you see it, because quite frankly, it does not, you know, it, it does not discriminate against her or make it, you know, uh, the the film does not laugh at her in any way. And truly, when how often do you see a movie with a, with a, a, a you know, a, a full-figured protagonist where the film does not mock that? Um, the fact that John Waters did that in 1988 is incredible. Hairspray, great film. Uh, Divine is fantastic in it. Uh, it obviously made this successful musical. It's, um, yeah, oh, that's fantastic that Hairspray's in. That makes me very happy. Good. Very good. Tom, thoughts on Hairspray? I'm into it. I'm glad good. it's in there. Uh, I, I forget. I, I'm, you, I, I know it was you who said it about that John Waters. My relationship with John Waters is that when people describe him, it's a filmmaker where I go, yeah, be transgressive, piss people off, do crazy shit. That also makes me go, I'm literally never going to watch your movies <laughs> except for Hairspray. Like Hairspray is probably the one where I'd be like, okay, he's not doing his weird like poo-poo eating stuff and Here's, like you would go all whatever the fuck the rosary scene. you would love I, that one also too i'd probably like i mean i think it's really mainly just like the weird like 
yeah, like the poo poo eating stuff, and like I don't even want to know what the rosary scene is. I like guess. I guess I I I, I can guess. I don't guess want to know. I I yeah, up a butt. I know. I get it. Um, Close. Uh, Multiple maniacs. Great movie. Um. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, God, I'm, I'm glad it's in. And uh, also, just nice to have a nice movie in this in this list. <laughs> yeah. This is. Listen, I've been in a, a, in a I, I should be candid with the honest. I haven't been in a great mental health place uh, the last couple weeks anyway. But boy, has this been an emotional one. Like the last two we did were like, we're yelling about stuff. We're cheering about stuff. This one's been heavy, man. Um, Cool. Okay. What's the next one, Kyle? Next picture. Are you happy? Want to be more? Yeah. Do you want to be happier? I'm afraid. Okay. How am I going to be happier? From 1989. And our first induction of the night, The Little Mermaid. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Fuck. No. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. You're going to cry about The Little Mermaid? No, Tom, I'm not crying about The Little Mermaid. I'm crying about the fact, I'm near crying about the fact that we just talked about a couple of entries ago, Word is Out, this documentary about openly gay people right on the precipice of the AIDS crisis. And now I'm thinking about the only film that Howard Ashman lived to see completed. Like I, we, um, my partner and I recently rewatched little mermaid cause we were going through all the Disney films. And every time part of your world plays, I cry because I think about that man writing that song and having to fight for it to get in and, and just bitterly fight Katzenberg and the crew. And he got it in. He's the only one he got to see completed. Um, that's right. I did pick little mermaid for the registry, uh, on our snow white episode. um, and uh, I, I mean, it's an incredible film. It, it kickstarts the Disney Renaissance. Um, it is some of the most beautiful animation. I mean, one of those things where we have so many things, you know, since that have been set underwater, whether it's Avatar or Black Panther 2 or the new Little Mermaid. And there is something about the way that that movie animates its underwater sequences that just still feels so beautiful. Um, that's, I think, the most impressive thing about The Little Mermaid is is that you can take qualms about its its storytelling or have issues with certain things and go, well, Beauty and the Beast does this better, Lion King does this better, and those are all fair. Those are absolutely fair. But there is a a simple beauty to The Little Mermaid and the way that it comes together, and especially the fact that there is something about, you know, just from a cinematic standpoint in general, I mean, we're in an interesting time for Disney right now with the leadership shift it's going through, and it's sort of losing its focus in a lot of its studios. There's something so transcendent about the fact that The Little Mermaid comes at a time where the studio is falling apart, didn't know what to do, and it takes a gamble on a really sweet and simple story. Um, it's very, I'm very, I'm so thrilled that it got in. Um, you know, I, I guess my only thing is what took them so gosh darn long. But um, yeah, and obviously, again, the the work of Howard Ashman, incredible. Just that makes me very happy. What a great, what a great choice. What a great film. Yeah, Little Mermaid's great. And uh, I don't have much more to add other than I'm glad Disney's going to honor its legacy by making a live action movie that looks like it was shot in a dirty puddle. See, like people are mad because of black ladies in it, which is dumb. What they should be mad about is that it looks like absolute diarrhea. And I don't mean like quality of the movie, like it may be an entertaining movie. No, just the underwater. It looks, 
it looks like they filmed it on like actual film prints and then took like White Castle dumps all over it. No, but it is weird that like it it is this thing of you know we're talking about underwater. I mean, Avatar, when we're recording this, Avatar: The Way of Water is about to come out. I am very curious to see how James Cameron does underwater because you know that can be a really tricky thing to do. Because you know. I you know, really wish that the undersea world in Black Panther 2 looked as good as it could have, and it just looked dim Well, because it's bad. like, it could look like, you know, because Aquaman did it well. Yeah. Black Panther did not. I mean, but it's also the thing of <laughs> Little Mermaid, and I'm, we're going to get off Little Mermaid soon, because I'm sure there's other films to talk about, but Little Mermaid, the thing I think it does so smart in the way that it does those undersea sequences is that rather than come up with some hard and fast rule about, like, well, what should the undersea look like? There really does seem to be a conscious decision of, like, hey, will it look cool if we get to see the light refraction? Then let's do it. Will it look better if we're just, you know, letting you see everything you need to see? Then let's do it. It's just about what what looks best in the moment, and we as the audience fill in the blanks instead of having to figure out this hard and fast visual rule that wouldn't serve it well. But, yeah, Little Mermaid, incredible film. Very glad for that. And, right. and very Next. glad that we got one in. We are uh, tied with last year. We got one in. Next picture. Can I make you happier? Kyle, I don't. I don't love the malevolence here, but yeah, okay. <laughs> the malevolence. malevolence. I'm more curious to see truly if you're about to ball because from 1989 and our second induction of the night, tongues untied. Wow! Okay. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I I, I nominated that to the registry during our Nanook of the North uh, episode. Uh, that's a, a Marlon Riggs film. It's it's Marlon Riggs' probably most famous film. Um, part documentary, part art film. We talked about it a lot on the end of Nanook of the North, so I won't spend too much time on it here. Go back and find that episode. Um, you can also find the film in the Criterion Collection, probably on the Criterion Channel, part of that signifying work of Marlon Riggs' collection. But um, between, um, I believe you said it was Behind Every Great Man, was the, the UCLA documentary about the the black trans woman, and and um, and Word is Out, and and now this, like just the, the serious concerted effort on the part of the registry to recognize um, queer history in America is uh it, it's it is seen and heard and uh very good to see that they're doing that uh especially with such important films um i've talked enough about tongues untied at the end of the north but folks look it up it's it's a remarkable work in so many senses i'm very happy that's in wow i'm very happy we got a second movie in this year jesus very cool. yeah 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 we did hey, mike yeah mike can, can yeah. i tell you something we're gonna have a third. Fuck you guys. That I yeah, that I know. That one I know, because that one got spoiled because that's in every headline. Yeah. Ooh boy, what a we. Okay, yeah. What a. Is this listeners? Listeners tweeted us. Was this? Is this fun for you? I feel like we're on an emotional roller coaster this time that we're not. See, normally. I'm not on an emotional roller coaster, but I am watching Mike have a hysterectomy in real time. <laughs> Our final film from 1989. When there's three 89 films. Yes. When Harry met Sally. Oh wow! Hell yeah! 
Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Love it. We love to see it. Rob Ryan of supremacy. <laughs> That's another guy where you just go, how is every movie he did from that run, from Spinal Tap to fucking Misery, or excuse me, A Few Good Men, is A Few Good Men before Misery? I don't know. Few, no, A Few Good Men. That run from till A Few Good Men. Oh, every movie in that run should be in the National Film Registry. Because each of those movies is the best of their respective genres. And and also, you know, what makes Hey, I Met Sally stand out, and of course it needs to be acknowledged, and I'm going to make uh, my partner and I sound like the most New York people in the world, but, you know, we're big Nora Ephron fans. Um, but really, like, that Nora Ephron script and that Rob Reiner direction and that, you know, Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal, the incredible supporting cast, it's just such a... You know, the thing is about a great romantic comedy, um, and I was thinking about this because uh, my partner and I were watching Something's Got to Give the other night. What makes a great romantic comedy is that you look at it and go, that shouldn't work. And there is so much about When Harry Met Sally that as great as the script is, and it's a tremendous script, and as great as the direction is tremendous, any one of those pieces is even slightly off and that whole movie doesn't work, Right. Like, Crystal has to be just right. Meg Ryan has to be just right. The lines have to be just right. You know, that famous Katz's Deli scene in another film plays terribly. But it just it just gets the tone so right. What a great film. I'm one, Another one that you feel shocked isn't in there already. Well, that's what I'm saying. That fucking run Reiner had, yeah. every movie is the best in its respective genre. This is, like, the best rom-com. So, like, what the hell, guys? I mean, good on you for getting to it now, but also, what the hell, guys? Glad it's in. Rhino Supremacy. Yeehaw. Kyle, next picture. From 1990? House Party. (laughs) 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 The kid in play House Party? Fuck yeah. Good! So good! Wow, Warner Brothers is really going hard with the marketing for the remake. This is, Kyle, we got two films, two of the films that I nominated to the registry got in this year. And despite that, this is the greatest joy that I have had so far tonight. That, you, Kyle, you could have given me one million guesses. You could have even said 1990 film about hip-hop culture. Still giving me a million guesses, and I would not have anticipated House Party. That's great. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Any. Um, yeah. Any movie that has John Witherspoon as a neighbor just complaining about the titular house party happening next to him is always okay in my book. Quite oh, possibly one of the funniest men of all time. Yes. This is amazing. Uh, I started laughing simply at Tom using the phrase, the titular house party. <laughs> the fact, the fact that there is no art, because look, House Party w- was one of the most successful independent films of all time, right? But it kind of always sat in this weird nebulous place um, where like mainstream culture hadn't accepted it as a great film. They still treated it like a flash in the pan. You know, even something like Friday that was maybe in that space before because of the memes, uh, you know, moved more information. Um, You know, but now it's in the registry. 
It is inarguable. We are now not only allowed, but we are free to speak academically about the motion picture house party. And I cannot imagine wanting to do anything more. What a, wow. House folks, if you haven't seen it, check it out and just bask in the glory of the early nineties. I mean, the 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 dance sequences alone. My goodness. Wow. Hell yeah. Let's fucking go. LFG. Let's fucking go, baby. We're on it. We are here. We out here. I'm so Kyle, happy. next picture. What's next, Kyle? Our free space card from 2008. Iron Man. Already? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so Iron Man, that's the one we all knew about, I'm sure. That got spoiled in the yeah. headlines a million yeah. times. Yeah. Um, and good on it. Um, that was... I I selected that as a registry pick for Star Wars, uh, basically arguing, you know, the, the manner in which it created the contemporary blockbuster the way Star Wars did. Um, I have my little Iron Man sitting right here because of that. I also think that there's a couple things with Iron Man that are significant. Um, one, the fact that it was, you know, uh, produced without a major studio on hand. It was, you know, Marvel Studios' first independently produced film. And the fact that the confidence that Marvel had with that was not in a movie star. It was in intellectual property, right? That, you know, the way the old studio system was like, well, we have our movie stars under contract. Marvel went, well, we have these characters in our wheelhouse, and that's the important thing. There's also something to, you know, I know that people can complain about the first Iron Man, um, about its story, and they can take problems with little things here and there. But one thing that makes Iron Man interesting to watch now we talked about it a bit when the Dark Knight got in uh, a year ago, two years ago, whenever that was, two years ago, how the Dark Knight was like the capper on the George W. Bush era and like the a concise commentary on the George W. Bush era. Iron Man always felt so tied to the Obama era. I mean, Obama referenced Iron Man in one of his first press briefings, right? Um, it always felt so tied to it because there was something that did, you know, as much as people like to pretend that these superhero movies mean nothing, there was something that at the time felt so transcendent about a movie that stars a, basically a warmonger in the middle of the Middle East who decides to turn his way, uh, change his ways and destroy these weapons and become a force for change, which is what so many of us were feeling in 2008, um, optimistically. So, very cool that Iron Man is in. I mean, you kind of had to rec. It's had the longevity already that you had to recognize it. So I'm very glad that they did. Yeah, glad it's in. It's you know what what else more? What more can we say? It's it's very important movie. So I'm I'm glad it's in. Fuck all you Marvel complaining babies. Next picture, the final one of the night. Indeed, the final one of the night, and I believe the youngest inductee now. From 2011, Pariah. Oh, the D. Reese movie. Okay. Yeah, for folks, um, you might know D. Reese from Mudbound, uh, which got her some Oscar recognition. Um, yeah, Pariah is a, is again, more, uh, more, uh, queer representation in the registry. Uh, a, a black gay woman is a central protagonist. Um, yeah, a really impressive independent film. Uh, first came to my attention when it appeared on Slate's uh, Black Film Canon, 
and certainly a a real calling card for D Reese in a really impressive way. Uh, D Reese, who I think is also the second ever uh, black woman nominated for screenwriting, I think so. You know, incredible achievement. Um, yeah, very cool to see that. Guy. I'm impressed with that one. That's an interesting pick. Yeah, Pariah. Um, easily found, easily streamable. Folks should check it out. Yeah. Uh, cool. Cool entrant. Uh, interesting that you decided to go with Mudbound for the D-Rees credit and not the last thing he wanted, the movie that set the world on fire. Everyone's still talking about it. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't they're, remember... They're, they're, the they're about to. Th- there's. There have been internal discussions about renaming Best Picture to Best Movie that isn't the last. Uh, the last thing he wanted. Uh. So. Uh. Interesting that you went with Mudbound. Interesting. I'm. I'm gonna remember that. D. Reese is gonna remember that. All right. That is our reactions to the uh, latest crop of National Film Registry films. If you were keeping track, fellas, how many of those have you seen? Five confidently. Okay. Nine. Yeah, I'm at about eleven by my count. So no best picture winners, obviously. Yeah, that's the thing. not just no best picture. There's no best picture nominees. So this was uh, for for folks listening. I was talking about how I was keeping track of the the registry and how many times they induct best picture nominees or best picture winners. Um, literally every year since the registry started, there has been at least one film in the class of inductees. That is either a Best Picture winner or a Best Picture nominee. It seems like this year is the first year that's not the case in the entire history of the registry. Um, it seems like the selections were very pointed to be more representative, I think, in a very good way. I think that when you look at this class, um, there weren't a lot of films. I mean, yes, we heard Iron Man and went, oh, yeah, of course. And when Harry and Sally, oh, yeah, of course. But there weren't nearly as many this year films where we just kind of went oh of course even the ones that like we like and that we have seen it's exciting to see house party get recognized that way that kind of thing um i think it's super interesting this year the the crop of films they selected in terms of what it represents and, and what they chose to say with those selections i think that's super interesting also very cool that last year one film from our registry uh submissions got in this year three I think that's very cool. Three films got in of the films that we select for the registry. None of them, unfortunately, Tom, were Here Come the Coeds. But, uh, you know, it's always next year. You're proud 12 documentaries this year. Wow! Jesus Christ, I guess that is a lot, yeah. Wow. That's al- almost that half the entrance are documentaries. All right, so out of that, I will ask y'all one last question before we wrap up, which is... We acknowledge most of us have not seen most of these films, but fellas, of all the films that we talked about that were inducted this year that you have not seen, which one are you most interested in checking out after this conversation? Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. That one I actually might not wait 30 years to watch. I might actually wait like three weeks, but um, that is one I definitely, I have it, so I can easily crack it open and watch it, but it also like does sound like the most me thing that they could have inducted this year. So I'm definitely into that. Kyle? Boy. Betty tells a story. 
I feel like that's like I feel like that'd be like an interesting just from like a character study perspective. But it's like actual... Eddie tells a story, he said. Yeah, just being able to sort Mine of too. yeah, that's just being able too. to kind yeah. of see that retell like retold and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, well, I had no idea what it was going into it, but after that paragraph, I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. I'd be, I guess, I'd be interested in checking that out. It's all right. Yeah. I guess I'll just yeah. go fuck myself. Gregorio Cortez was second on my list, Tom. So you know we weren't far off. Oh well, okay. So I'll only just fuck myself slightly less hard because it came in second for Kyle. Jerk off. Should I should I bump that down to third and take a house party number two? Then wait, Kyle. Have you never seen House Party? Never seen it, but now Kyle, make that number one. Make that number one tonight. Make that number one. Whenever this episode is done, make that number one. All right, folks. Thank you so much for checking out our registry picks. Most likely, you will hear from us again in another special episode when we talk about the Academy Awards. Should be interesting this year with some of the things going on. We'll probably drop an Academy Awards bonus episode, and we are already in the process of booking guests and arranging Season 3. We are looking for Season 3 to come out in early 2023. We hope you'll join us. A lot of interesting films uh, that we will be talking about. So, folks, thank you so much for checking out. You're missing out. We will see you again in 2023. See you, gang.